Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, hey. Steve. Shock jock Steve Price. I don't like shock jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100% right. Well, Steve joins us now. How does a computer genius who came to Australia as a nine-year-old immigrant from Iran establish Australia's best car comparison site, sell it for over $35 million, and then go again? This episode of On The Record talks to the amazing Alborz Falar about failed business ventures and his media play with caradvice.com. Alborz, how are you? Good, mate. How are you? What, what do you think it is about Australians and cars? You know what it is? I, I think most people uh, in Australia, I mean, obviously we're a car culture and given the size of the country, um, everybody needs a car. You cannot get around in Australia without a car. So it's not like it's like Europe where you could definitely, uh, you know, get away with life not having a car. So everybody needs a car. But the problem is that there's so many options in Australia. Australia has got one of the highest number of car choices. We have over 60 brands in Australia. So people have absolutely no idea what they should buy. And that's why uh, a site like Car Advice and plenty of others have a very thriving business. So, yeah, I think and obviously people want to talk to an actual expert um, rather than just send an email. So I think your show provided that opportunity greatly. So when you when you came up with the, the concept and the idea of Car Advice, why cars? I mean, you could have – I mean, clearly you're a, you're a very smart uh, man and you could have gone in any direction. It could have been gardening. It could have been caravans. Who knows? But why cars? Well, it's it's, a, it's an interesting question, and you're right. I actually did go in many different directions. Um, I um, car advice was the seventeenth business that I started. Seventeen, seventeen. Uh, yeah, I was really good at failing. Um, <laughs> I, I was doing. I'd done restaurant reviews. I was doing computer game reviews. I, I'd done. I sort of tried my hand at everything that I thought would make money. The only thing I didn't try was what I actually loved, which was cars. Um, and eventually, after my sixteenth business sort of wound up and I was like, you know, maybe being an entrepreneur isn't for me. Maybe I'm just not good at it. I remember a friend of mine saying to me, why don't you just do what you actually like instead of trying to find some niche somewhere to make money? And he's like, what do you like? I said, I love cars. He goes, okay, but do you know anything about cars? I said, not really. Like, I mean, I love cars and I read everything about them, but I'm not a mechanic. I don't have any technical skills. And he said, does that matter? And I said, I don't know. Um, so I started car advice. I still remember registering the domain like it was yesterday and I couldn't believe that somebody else had taken it. That was the that was the weirdest thing about it. Um, and, yeah, it cost me 35 bucks, So uh, it was a good investment. Um, but, man, I started writing about cars um, from the heart, and so I just really took off. And then, you know, people like Paul Merrick and Anthony Corker joined. And, yeah, we just kept growing it and growing it and growing it. So it was a, it's been a really fascinating journey to sort of build it up and sell it. So it's sad to sell it, but, you know, that's business. So you clearly were an early adopter of the digital space. Uh, and you, you must, you were surely you were ahead of your time because now everybody's trying to do business online digitally. Uh, what, why did you realize early on that that was going to be the future? Oh, look, you know, um, when I came to Australia, like you said, when I was nine, um, I, uh, it's, you know, I started in sort of year three here, and I remember one day we had this class in the library and this guy was showing us how to build websites in, a, in something called GeoCities, which is it's just long dead, I think, or if it's around, no one knows about it anymore. It's just like a <laughs> bit like MySpace. Yeah, it was like a little tool you could use to make websites and, you know, and they were showing us how to do it and stuff. And I remember as a nine-year-old, I was just like, holy crap, I could make something that people can see. And that was such a hugely appealing thing to me. And by the time I was 11, I was making money online. You know, I had to use my dad's name because it was illegal for me to make money online. But, you know, checks were appearing in the mail 
fit my dad's name on it. He was pretty confused about it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I sort of started really early. I launched so many different things and so many different websites. I was just, I don't know, I, um, I wouldn't call myself a computer nerd, but I just, I really loved the concept that something that I could make, uh, would appear to so many people out there. And it's a very different time, you know, now compared to back then. Not necessarily because, you know, I was a pioneer or, or anything like that. It was mainly because back then there was no such thing as Facebook or Instagram. And all these people that are currently building you know, their presence online would have had to build their own assets, their own websites, their own everything. And now they just put it on somebody else's. Um, and it's crazy. Like all these people that have built enormous sort of social empires, which make them some money. But I tell you what, if they were putting it into their own platform, they'd be making a lot more money. So, you know, I didn't have that option back then. So it sort of forced me into building my own platforms. And that was really the reason why um, I learned so much about running an online business is that I was forced to. Otherwise, I would have just opened a Facebook account and wrote about cars there, and that would have been a good hobby, but it would never made me any money. I read your piece in Mumbrella, uh, and we're going to talk about uh, where you're at with, with, with the car website in, in a moment, but I want to go back to um, why your family decided to, to come to Australia. I, I, I spoke to Rita Panahi in this series for On the Record. She, like you, um, ha- is of Iranian parentage her parents were both Iranian they they moved to America and that's where she was born but they she did spend time as a, a child in in Tehran um, you came here as at the age of nine what prompted your parents to choose Australia yeah look my parents um, lived in Michigan for a long time before I was born so my dad did his first PhD at Ann Arbor University Michigan near Detroit um, and my mom was doing her master's there and then when the Iranian revolution happened in the late 70s, um, they decided to come back because they felt like they could help the country. You know, they're very educated. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, they didn't realize how, how much worse it was going to get. But they're, they're both very anti-religious. You know, they're not religious people at all. And, and to be perfectly honest, nor are most Iranians. So it's a shame that the country is portrayed that way. But um, so they went back home and then they got caught. We lived in a town called Atwaz, uh, which is right on the border of Iraq. And when, when they got back, it was right before the beginning of the Iran and Iraq war. So <clears throat> around the same time. And so I was sort of born into that. Um, you know, I was born into a middle of a war zone and, uh, the parents were obviously stuck there for a while. And, um, look, I, yeah, as a kid, I, I still have memories of it. You know, like it's crazy to think, I mean, I feel like I have childhood amnesia, but, um, it's, you know, I remember the planes going over past, I remember the sky turning black and acid rain and all sorts of shit, you know, like it's crazy. I don't really think about it too much these days, but, it does sort of form a little bit of your childhood. So obviously my parents, uh, having had uh, an enormous amount of experience living overseas, they decided to, you know, get me the hell out of there, I suppose. And um, I think Australia, this was long after the war had finished, but it's, you know, it's, a, it's a war over this country. So, um, yeah, we came here in uh, 93. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, my parents left everything behind to do it. So in Iran, if you want to go overseas, the current government or back then would have made you pretty much give everything that you own to them as a guarantee that you would come back. And, you know, they had a few properties and things like that, which are uh, no longer there. So it's a big sacrifice to basically come here with zero and give up your entire life um, and all the assets and everything that you built up <clears throat> just to give your kid a chance to come here. So a bit of a, bit of a high expectation on me, I suppose. But I never really felt it. They never really sort of made me feel that way. I, I think they just realized that being here is <clears throat> even from a zero starting point at such a late age for them was a better option for their kid than, than sort of being stuck there. And 
I guess they were proven right. So I'm forever grateful for them to make that decision. So I, I, I kind of think myself as Australian, really, to be honest. I, um, I never really think of myself as Iranian. Obviously, I, I look like I'm Iranian. I'm from Iran, but I've sort of grown up here. I've got that culture and that mentality, and I swear, like any other Australian. So yeah, I, uh, your parents. That's sort of how I think of myself. Your parents must be very proud of you. Yeah, my parents. Have, I guess they are very proud of me. Yeah, I've never really thought about it. I think they are. I mean, they, they don't say otherwise. Um, they are. They're both just. You know, they they came here and both did another PhD because you know I guess that's what you do when you're Iranian. You just keep studying. Um, you know, they. It was pretty hard for them. You know, like my dad was a professor back home and um, and a former Olympic weightlifter, and my mum's a child psychologist. And you know, when we came here, um, my mum couldn't get a job because she was overqualified. So she actually ended up working as a like a substitute teacher um, for five years before she could really you know, get up and going again. And, you know, my dad was doing whatever he could do to make money and stuff. And, you know, these are people that, like I said, like they're not, they're not just idiots. They're, they're really smart, highly qualified people. So they did whatever they could to get by so that I could come here. And, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of think like my mindset was a little bit different growing up. Like I always felt like I had to make the most of the stuff and, uh, so I kind of did. Like I, I really went for it. I, I didn't. I didn't really stuff around. I wasn't very good at school, um, but I don't really think I thought that mattered. I was just like, I'm gonna. I didn't want to be poor. I think I grew up poor, and and uh, one of my main ambitions in life was to not be poor anymore. So I, I sort of put my heart and soul into that process of, you know, I, I guess when you grow up poor, you're as a child, your your mentality is quite different. Some people are sort of overcome by it and continue the cycle of being poor and. Some people do the absolute best to get out of it. So I'd like to think of myself as, as, the, as the other kind. So my parents aren't like car obsessed, but clearly they they did love their cars to an extent. Um, but they always said to me, like, ever since I was a little kid, long before I came here, I was still obsessed with cars and I would still point out all the cars even in Iran. And, you know, I've got photos of me sitting on my dad's lap driving like a car when I was five years old sort of thing and just stuff like that. So I think that's, that sort of uh, thing was sort of bred into me a little bit. But, yeah, you know what? That's, uh, some people just love things and some people don't. So I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's uh, nature or nurture, but I think it was a bit of both for me. I'm like you. I love cars. I couldn't fix one to hit, save myself, but I like driving them and I still love the smell of a new car. So did you yeah. go to university? I did, mate. I, um, I came to – so we lived in Brisbane. Um, so I've always been in Brisbane. Um, had a few stints in Sydney, but I'm a Brisbane boy. At heart, I um, I went to University of Queensland. I did two degrees. Um, it was good. Um, they made me an honorary professor there. So I'm, uh, I'm currently an honorary professor at the University of Queensland. Which I should have cool. called you uh, professor. <laughs> um, it's honorary, so I guess it's uh, as Paul Mary calls it. It's like a um, uh, like being on a cornflakes uh, sticker box. You know, you get an honorary professor. It's not. That's not the case. It's actually a great honor, but um, it's not a. It's you know, it's not my, my parents. Um, or real professors, so but they were still proud of me when I got an honorary professorship. Um, so that was nice. Some bit of an academic uh, a tick there, I guess. But yeah, I went to UQ. I uh, did two degrees. Um, learned a fair bit. Uh, I think I only really went to uni because um, I thought that's what you do to an extent. But I, I didn't really attend uni so much. I was too busy running businesses on the side to to actually show up to stuff at, at UQ. So still went through, still passed it. Um, but yeah, I. Uh, I'm not necessarily sure uh, how much university I actually attended. So where does that entrepreneurial flair come from, do you think? Because, I um, mean, to, to start and, and fall over with so many businesses and then to have such a huge success with Car Advice and now Car Expert, I mean, you, 
you're clearly not afraid to put yourself out there and put your own money behind your ideas. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have much money. So I guess, um, look, it's funny. It's, it's a good question. Uh, I'll give you an experience that sort of really shaped uh, a, a lot of sort of my decision making. Um, as I said, I, I sort of started my first business when I was 11. Um, I mean, by business, I mean, he was making money, but it wasn't like huge, but still, it was making money, right? For an 11 year old, that wasn't bad. So you'd be getting like a couple hundred bucks a month out of it. Um, but I think when I was like 14 and a bit, whatever the legal age was, to, uh, to get a job, I, um, I tried to get a job pretty much everywhere. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear in this podcast. Yeah, you, you can. Let me know. Yeah, you can. You can. Okay, great. Cause that's been, I've been holding myself back. Um, so I tried to get a job everywhere, man, and I applied for so many places and I ended up, like getting to a stage where I was uh, going for an interview, I think it was at Woolworths or something. Yeah, it would have been at Woolworths. And I remember, you know, thinking, "Hey, I'm going to be like a, going to get a job at Woolworths. That'll be good. I'll get some pocket money and stuff." And even they called me back and said, "Oh, I didn't have the right attitude." And I was like, "How the fuck do you not have the right attitude to like check out items for things?" Like I was like, "Man, I must, I must be really bad at things." Um, and I think I decided at that point that I was just going to go on my own. Hey. Do you been, think you just know, just on that? Do you think there was a a, a sniff of uh, racism there that they were not wanting to employ uh, a person of color? Look, I'm. Um, I, I know I'm, you wouldn't say that unless you thought it, but yeah, I, I, I look. We moved to Queensland in early nineties. Uh, there were so many examples of racism towards my parents that I remember clearly now thinking about it. But I, I'm not one of those people that blames that on anything. I, mm. I actually think that. If anything, that would have powered me on. Um, you know, I mean, I think I grew up as a kid wishing I was white to an extent, for sure. But ultimately, I think not being white um, and feeling like that was holding me back made me work twice as hard. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think it ever, I don't think it ever affected me, so to speak. I'm actually really glad I didn't get that job at Woolworths because it would have been a completely different fork in the road for me. But that made me double down and start my next online business, and that actually did quite well. You know, like. I say I've had 17 failures, but some of those businesses along the way were doing really, really well. I was just too young to understand how to take them to the next step. Give so us an example them. what you're talking about. Well, I, I, I ran a website called um, myweblog.com, um, which is before the word blog even existed. So we're talking like, what would that have been? That would have been like 2005, 2006, right? So nearly um, 20 years ago. Yeah, 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 a long time ago now. And um, at its peak... I had, I think, 68,000 active daily users that would come in and write a blog every day on that site. And I created the software from scratch. I've written wow. all of it. Um, People would right? kill for those numbers now, even today. Well, back, well, back then, that was absolutely extraordinary um, to have so much. Like, you know, you could have said that was a precursor to MySpace to an extent um, because it was, it, was, it was such a terrible-looking website when I think about it now. But I've done it all myself, right? All myself. What were they? What were they blogging about? Just life. It was like basically people coming on Facebook and blogging, and you could comment and things like that. So um, it sort of launched in two thousand and three. So quite a lot before Facebook actually launched. Um, and you know what? It was just word of mouth. It was just spreading. But to give you an idea how little I knew about business, or or sort of how little I understood about scaling, I um, obviously my parents were paying for the like the the cost of the website in terms of hosting. And, uh, you know, it would go up because get, as, as more popular as it got, the more expensive it would become to maintain. And I think when it got to like, you know, three, four hundred dollars a month, my mum's like, you know, what, what is this? Why are we paying for it? You know, like, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Not, not because they were being mean, because obviously, you know, we couldn't afford it. And I remember one day I just turned it off 
because I was like, oh, I can't afford to keep this anymore. Like, it, it was fun. Like, it was an idea that worked, but, you know, I just turned it off. And I remember getting, like, so many angry emails from people that could find my details saying, um, where is my two years of blogging gone, dickhead? Like, can I have that back, please? Like, all that stuff. Like, so many people. I had to put it back online for, like, a month so people could download all their blogs. But all I had to do was monetize. All I had to do was... So I could, be talking, to I could be talking to Mark Zuckerberg. Well, I wouldn't say that, but, you know, you could have been talking to someone. What's the guy that started MySpace? Um, yeah. That would have been the more likely Easily scenario. forgotten. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, hey, you still made 600 mil, so it's not yeah. too bad. Um, so, look, I've, I've had plenty of things that have hit it. I just didn't know how to monetize. I, okay, you know, you know, it's it's an interesting question, not so much because of that, but because it gives you an idea of my mindset in a sense that I – you know, my, my parents are very academic and they don't have much business acumen. Um, I felt like what I was doing from a business perspective didn't necessarily provide any value. So therefore, I didn't know how to charge for it because I felt like a fraud. Like, these people aren't going to, you know, accept ads. These people aren't going to pay me to do this. So I always thought, oh, well, this is just a hobby. This is just for fun. Um, and even in the early days of car advice, I always felt like, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to monetize it because I don't think what I'm providing as a service is worth it. You know, who, the, who the fuck cares what I write about cars? You know, no yeah. one wants to really read that. So I always undervalued myself. So, yeah, but, you know, obviously eventually your mindset changes and you realize where your mistakes are. But the thing about car advice, uh, in, a, in a sense, Al Bors, is that it had so much credibility. Uh, you know, you, you didn't log on and think, oh, well, these people are just flogging Mercedes. I mean, it, it was fiercely independent, wasn't it? Absolutely, mate. We um we launched it with that in mind. Um, it was always about making sure that we're obviously honest. That you know the motto at Cardwise was put your you know put your mindset uh, as the person who's actually buying that particular car and write for them. Don't write for your peers. You know, don't write for the manufacturer. Don't write to please the PR person. Just write for the person who might be buying the car. And that just that simple way of thinking about it really helped shape how we went about doing car advice. So. You know, the entire time that we were there, I can proudly tell you we never took money to write anything. Um, you know, we had some, towards the end, we had some sponsored content stuff, but, you know, it was obviously clearly marked and things like that. But even that, I was very ashamed of, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, so it was always a very a business built on trust and authenticity. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, after we sold it, and I had very little to do with it, I'm not sure where it went. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's sad to sort of see that journey come to an end, but I guess that's what happens in life. So in 2006, you started. How long did it take before the motoring motor industry, particularly the retailers, the big retailers, how long did it take before they started to notice you and take you seriously? Um, not very long, to be honest. Um, one of the businesses I ran prior to Car Advice was a, was a company that specialized in SEO, which is uh, search engine optimization. Um, so, you know, making sure that when someone Googles something, you come up first. And, you know, I, I, I had a lot of I had a lot of interesting clients there and I learned a lot doing that, which I applied all of it to car advice in the early days. So, you know, I remember distinctively uh, there was a new Holden Barina being launched and we're going back to 2006 now. And Holden didn't invite us to drive the car or didn't want us to be associated. They just didn't want anything to do with us because they didn't know who we were and we obviously didn't have the credibility back then. But either way, I I went to a dealer and borrowed a car pretending I was going to buy it and then wrote a little review about it, how crap it was, because it was a dreadful car. <laughs> and uh, I optimized it so well that when you Googled Holden Barina, it was the first thing that showed up. Oh, no. And here was here was Holden, who probably spent close to half a billion dollars engineering, designing, launching, marketing, 
the car, and the first thing people do when they sort of see an ad for a new car is to go on Google and Google it. And this idiot from Brisbane was saying, this is the worst fucking car I could currently buy. And uh, tell you what, it got their attention pretty quickly. And they're like, oh, um, uh, how about we, uh, we give you the car and we'll, you, know, you can talk to our product engineering guy and he can explain to you why all these things you said are not true. I'm like, well, they are true. The car is shit. Um, but I'm happy to take the car and do another review on it and stuff. I still didn't change my mind, but I think they realized how different um, it could be in the new world. Because up until that point, you know, they, they were sort of pretty much just wooing the big publications like Fairfax and, and News Corp and back then the ACP magazines and things, whereby they held the power. But, you know, the internet age really changed that. Um, which is actually another reason why I think maybe some of your listeners would know this, but, you know, the current dispute with Google, Facebook and the likes of News Corp and them around um, Google having to pay for content. Um, you know, that's that's ridiculous. Like, what what's that going to do is stop small publishers like Car Advice was back then from ever getting a leg up. Because if they're going to dictate to Google and Facebook what can show up and who has to pay for it, then it's going to have a huge impact on any small media business trying to launch again. And, I, and I'm fiercely on the side of Google and Facebook on that, not because I want them to make more money, but because the algorithm that they currently employ gives us equal playing field to all publishers. And what, what these guys are trying to do is not only make money from their content on Google and Facebook, which they, you know, which is a valid argument, but it would actually alter the algorithm that those companies use to show you content. And that really puts the small guys at a huge disadvantage. Well, anyway, the small guys – There's a there with something to think about. Small guys, anyone can buy a printing press and start publishing. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what freedom yeah. of the press is about, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. It's a lot easier to um, it's a lot easier to do it online than buy a printing press. I suspect I've never done the printing press site, but um, I could set up a I could set up a little website to publish in about half an hour. So it's pretty easy to do, you know. When did you realise Car Advice was going to be the success it became? Uh, another great question, actually. I um, in two, so I launched it in two thousand six. Um, at the same time that I launched it, I actually got a full time job at the University of Queensland, and uh, there's about six months in where, I don't know, I don't think I did a day's actual work at UQ. Um, and um, I remember it was six months in and I hadn't looked at the sort of the bank account of the business because, you know, I had some ads on it. Stuff, and I hadn't really looked at it because I didn't think it was making any money. Um, and one day I logged in and I realized that I was earning more money per month at a paradise than I was from my full-time salary at UQ. And, you know, at the time I was, what would I be, I was in 22 and I was unreasonable, Sally. It was on like 65 grand a year, which wasn't that bad back then for a 22-year-old. But the site was making like nearly double that every month. And I was like, holy shit, like where did that come from? Like where is this money coming from? And I had to actually make sure it was right. And then halfway through realizing whether it was right or not, I realized it was actually US dollars. So it was actually more than I thought it was because um, it was being paid in US dollars. And I thought, holy crap. But uh, anyway, it was a bit of a shock to me. Um, I, was so, um, I was so excited that day that I, uh, I had to, for work, I had to drive from one U- UQ campus, from one uni campus to another. And somewhere along the way, I think I got bored and <laughs> pulled into a side street. I must have tried to do a donut or, or, or something stupid in the, in the work car, right? Like something just, something that you do as a dumb 22-year-old when you get bored. And um, I must have been the unluckiest person on the planet that day because as I was doing it, a police car decided to drive past, which I thought was kind of hilarious uh, retrospectively, but quite terrifying at the time. So I got a nice ticket about it. And a call to UQ that one of their work cars was being used <laughs> for like a donut in a side street somewhere, like literally in the middle of nowhere. Right? It just couldn't be, you couldn't time it any better. Um, there wasn't a car in sight for like 20 kilometers. It happened to be a police that's driving past. Sounds like fate, um, fate to me. 
Yeah, it was. And anyway, by the time I got back, I had an email from my boss saying, you know, obviously we need to have a chat and blah, blah. I thought, oh, they're going to fire me. Um, and then the next morning, I just I just came in with a resignation letter. I said, look, guys, I'm, this is it. I want to quit. And they're like, no, 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 we don't want to fire you. We, just, we, have, to, we have to give you a warning. Like, you know, you know, you can't, we don't want you to leave. Like, you're doing a really good job. And I was like, I'm really not, actually. I haven't done anything for six months. But anyway, um, but I quit anyway. I was just like, no, nah, it's fine. I'm, this is obviously not made for me. I'm not here to be, you know, my biggest fear was, I'd get a full-time job and I'd spend 10 years there and maybe I'd move up a couple of positions, but it would never get me to my dream of, I guess, having the things that I wanted to have and having a sort of an adventurous life. So I think uh, I finally managed to get one of the 17 businesses to give me that opportunity. And I tell you what, I held on to it with both fucking hands and rode it all the way to the top. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, so that 10 years of car advice before we sold it was probably, uh, the most exciting 10 years so far in my life. Was it about making money or was it about um, showing yourself and your parents that if you have an original thought and you actually then put the time in to monetize it, that you can make it work, that you can become an entrepreneur? Um, look, it was actually, to be honest, man, it was, I mean, the, the money was, was good and it was, and it was great to get it. I mean, we nearly went bankrupt twice. We had some terrible investors. We had so many ups and downs along the 10 year journey that I don't think it was necessarily the money. It was, it was the fact that for once in my life, I was doing something I actually loved. Um, you know, I was, I was basically living and breathing cars and getting paid for it, which I think to a lot of guys that are into the, into their cars would be, it would be an absolute dream. You know, I was flying around the world to different racetracks and driving people's cars and writing about them. Like I, I couldn't, people pay to do that. Um, well, I often so said to Paul and Trent, you guys have got the best jobs in the world. And it's true. I think for anyone that loves cars, it truly is the best job in the world. Unfortunately, for most people that do this job, they're just getting paid by the company for which they work for. Um, you know, whether that's News Corp, Fairfax, or even Car Advice to an extent. But for me, it was my own company. So I had the double whammy of the best job in the world. Plus, I was building something of value for me as well. Um, and uh, in regards to sort of proving something to myself, I, I think so. I think to a great extent, um, you know, as I said, my parents were sort of low middle class, uh, you know, never really had much money. And, you know, we never went on holiday the whole time we were here. Um, not once, you know, like it's, um, it's, uh, you know, I guess I wanted to, I wanted to not have that life. I wanted my kids not to have that life. So I think I just sort of always had that in my back of my mind. You know, I've got to, I've got to make something big work. Otherwise, um, I'll just be mediocre. Going to talk about the nine deal in a moment, but just while we're on the, your uh, life of, Globe trotting and driving the best cars in the world. What is the best car you've ever driven? You think? Oh, I couldn't tell you, man. I've, I've um, I've pretty much bought every car that I thought was the best car in the world at the time <laughs> that I drove it. Um, except for maybe the uh, Pagani Zonda, which is just like five million bucks, and that seems a bit crazy. Bit over the um, top. Yeah, but like I've got seven cars at the moment, and every time I drove a car that I just thought, fuck, I absolutely fucking love this thing. Um, yeah. When I had the means, I could bought it. Like I, I, you know, one of the very early, uh, one of the very first sort of exotic car companies that gave us cars at Car Advice was Aston Martin, and um, and they get, started giving us cars like eighteen months in from when the business was launched, so pretty pretty early on for us. And nobody else was giving us cars. Like you know, we couldn't even get Mercs at that time, but we were getting Aston Martins, and you know, became good friends with the guy who was running it. And I remember having an Aston Martin in Brisbane and sort of driving over the Story Bridge and just fuck us as as a you know, as an early 20 year old kid, um, that's a lot of emotion because you're just like, holy shit. Like, you know, when you, when you're growing up poor, 
and now you're driving around in a $400,000 car sort of thing. Yeah. Um, has a bit of an impact on you. And I, the, the, sense, the sort of emotions that it, that brought up and what it connected to the car, I, I'll never forget. And I tell you what, the, the minute that we sold the first batch of shares, that was actually to Macquarie Bank. Um, you know, when we sold 5% of the company to Macquarie Bank, um, the first thing I did was go and buy an Aston Martin. I was just like, fuck it. Like, that's, <laughs> I, I did. My wife's like, it's the worst possible idea to pay off our mortgage and stuff. I said, I know, I know, but, um, I've been waiting for this moment for a really, really long time. So I did. I actually went and bought one, and uh, I, that's still my favorite car because it's got such a, I've got such an attachment from the early days to it that every time I drive it, it reminds me of being really poor and not being poor. So it's a, it's a, it's a nice feeling. When I first moved to Sydney, I went to work at 2UE, and the great John Laws was still on air, and he's a great car collector. He's got dozens of cars, and he said to me one day in that beautiful John Laws voice, "I think we should go to lunch." And so we went down to the garage downstairs at 2UE and he had a, a DB9 sitting there and I got in and you could just see that he, on the millions of dollars he was earning, he just loved more than anything sitting behind the wheel of that Aston Martin and listening to it when he turned the key over. Yeah. Or pushed the starter button, I should say. Yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, there's something about it. Um, yeah, I'm the same, man. I have all the cars. I own many of them now, significantly more expensive. That, that Aston still... Uh, Still uh, turns my heart every time I turn it on. So, so you makes me want to drive it now. <laughs> you sold part of the company to Macquarie, as you just said. How did you? Where did the Channel Nine deal come about? Yeah. So look, one of the mistakes I made early on at Car Advice um, was that. Uh, so I, I, we brought on um, the first person that came on board was a fellow named Anthony Corfit, who uh, I would now consider probably one of my best friends. Um, he came on really early, maybe six months in, um, and he was an older guy and. Not old. I mean, he, I'd be joking now he's old, but he wasn't really that old. Um, and, uh, you know, we sort of really got along and we sort of helped this, build the business together. But the, the third person that came on board was a, was like what we'd call an angel investor. Um, and uh, he put in $20,000, right? Uh, that $20,000 ended up being about seven, eight million dollars return by the end of, by the end of his time. Um, but that $20,000 was the worst decision I ever made. And, you know, the saddest part of that is, that my parents offered to give me the money. That was pretty much all the money that saved in that time we were in Australia for 10 years. Um, and I just went, no, I can't take their money. You know, I just, I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it because I was like, I can't take too much risk for them. That's all they've got. That's their safety net. And I didn't take it. And I really regret not taking it because that would have been a great investment for them. But yeah, this, we brought this person on, on board for a very little amount of money and they just made my life a living hell. So, that, you know, that the only thing I regret about car advice was that journey of having people on board early that really didn't contribute anything but held enough shares to make your life um, a living misery. So sort of towards the um, 2014 or so, you know, a, a fair few of the shareholders were agitating for us to either sell the business or list the business um, on the ASX. And we initially went down the path of selling the business in 2014 and we did all the work and, you know, we put it out to tender and, you know, went and saw everybody, including, you know, News Corp and, Fairfax and car sales and Channel 7 and Channel 9, pretty much everybody, right? We went and saw everybody. And you laugh at this, but the best offer we got for the business at the time was $4 million from car sales. <laughs> and, uh, I, yeah, I remember because I was on a flight from Brisbane to Hong Kong and the offers were closing while I was mid-flight, right? So I, I didn't know when I took off and I knew everything when I landed. And I remember getting off the plane and, like, frantically trying to connect my phone to Wi-Fi so I can check my email. Um, and seeing an email from our then CEO saying, oh, you know, a bit disappointing, guys, the best offer we got is four million. I actually like sat down 
on the chair at the airport for like 10 minutes because I was in shock because, you know, we were making about 10 million bucks revenue at the time there. So our business was worth significantly more than that. So people didn't, um, just didn't get it? No, I think, you know, it's supply and demand. When you try and sell something, people go, ooh, you know, why are you selling it? Like, what's wrong with it? You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. you know, ex- yeah, exactly. It's like a divorce sale for a house. You always try and get a better price on it because you know they want to get rid of it. Um, the, the outcome of that was that we went, nah, fuck this. Um, this is worth significantly more money. Uh, we're going to double down. We're going to go after this really hard and we're going to fuck all you over, basically. That was a sort of attitude response to that, to that outcome, which I think realistically, if one of those guys had given us 15, I think we had it in our mind that we'd sell it to 15, right? That was, that was what we thought. And even that was, I mean, now that, you know, we ended up selling it to 62. So you can kind of see that it was worth keeping it for a little bit longer. But um, if one of those guys had come back with that money, uh, they would have got a fucking amazing asset for such little. But they didn't because it was up for sale. So we actually we actually changed tack. We said, all right, the business is not up for sale. In fact, we're going to clean it up, get it all ready to a list. So for a listing on the ASX, you know, we replaced CEOs, got a new guy in, doubled down, worked really hard, you know, partnered with Macquarie Leasing. They bought 5% of the company. Um, they gave us some funds to really invest, blah, 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 blah. And as we went down the process of, uh, listing it. Obviously, word had got out that we were going to list, and all of a sudden, uh, all the same people that we'd offered the business to had come back looking for it, um, going, "Oh, okay, well, let's have a chat about this now before you list," because they knew that once it listed, it was you couldn't buy it. Well, you could, but it'd be a lot harder. Yep. Um, so, in the, while we were running the listing process, we also ran the sales process, and that resulted in a bit of a bidding war between a couple of different places, and yeah, ended up obviously being Channel Nine. Um, who took the deal, which was a great deal for them um, and a great deal for us. I, I still regret not listing the business. I think had we listed it, we would have all got a lot more money for it, um, given the given the multiples on some of the some of the in, uh, some of our competitors in the market and right now. I think we, we would have been in the hundreds, um, not in the sixties. So, but you know, you only live once, so we, we made we made the choice. It wasn't a bad one, and I learned a lot from it for the next one. So. So as you explained in your article in in Mumbrella, and I thank them for me being able to use some of that material, that um, Nine then uh, went on to complete their takeover of the Fairfax media assets, including the radio station I was working on and and I'm no longer at. And um, they were determined somehow, I guess it happened in their their boardroom elbows, where they thought their drive product was superior to car advice and they inexplicably – have decided to shut car advice down. Yeah, I um, it, well, it just beggars belief. It it really does. Drive ended up being a four page uh, lift out in their newspapers with no ads on it. Well, I, I tell you a little story. When I was still at Car Advice, and when we were still running it, like as in myself and and the previous CEO and the previous management team, um, when when the nine Fairfax deal was announced and we had, we eventually took overdrive in its entirety as in car advice took overdrive. Cause that's actually what happened. Um, everybody at drive was fired. We may, I think we kept one or two people. Um, every editorial staff was fired and our intention was to kill drive and we did our very best to do so. But that's, we, from a, I guess from an SEO perspective, from a, to an extent, even from a credibility perspective, um, we gutted that website. We made it all point back to car advice. Like we, we knew that the death of that site was coming. So we were like sort of milking a dead old 
you know, cow, um, just to get whatever little bit of milk was left out of it before we just shot it. So to sort of see it go the other way, especially when car advice is now so strong, like it's, it's so big. Car advice is so big. It's, it's traffic is substantially higher than drive. Um, and it's credibility is substantially better than drive and it's sort of brand recognition digitally is so much better than drive. But somehow a decision is probably made using an Excel spreadsheet formula that says, or, you know, some marketing agency that has sort of worked out that for whatever reason, drive is the better name to go for because of, you know, they asked 20 people and this is what they said. Um, then yeah, that's, that's where you're. If you were a Channel 9 shareholder and wondering where $62 million went, you could go and have a look at that Excel spreadsheet and work it out from there. But um, to me, it's a crazy decision. I'm a little bit biased, of course, but even thinking thinking logically and pragmatically, I still think it's a crazy decision. But it's not mine to make, so um, what can I do? $62 million, and then were you not? did you not have to sign any sort of non-compete clause because you're out there now with a brand-new site, Car Expert, and – you're going to do again what you did with car advice and them shooting car advice makes that job for you a lot easier, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't answer your first question, but I think your second question is answered for you. Um, so, yes, I'm out there again uh, with a new website. We've actually taken pretty much the best people out of car advice with us to start again. I've got uh, 15 full-time employees. Only one of them isn't from car advice. Um, so you can kind of go to show you that people wanted something else to believe in that they actually believed in. Um, and they uh, sort of all came over with us, and we launched Car Expert. And um, it's very different to Car Advice. You know, uh, it's a very different model, but still goes back to creating car content that we all loved and believed in, um, and wasn't influenced by you know sponsored content or commercial deals or anything like like that. So um, yeah, that's that's what it is. I think turning Car Advice off uh, for me personally is is quite sad. And and the reason I say that is because you know I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who's a, who's a you know who works in the building industry. You know, he's a developer, and I was saying to him, you know, when you when you build something, you know, you can bring your kids in twenty years and say, you know, I built that. You know, that's that's my that's one of your legacies. That you know, that's that giant high rise. That's yours. Um, with car advice, I, you know, my kids are nine and six now. By the time they're like old enough to realize stuff, that's like going to be long dead, and they're going to go, "What did you do in your you know twenties, Dad?" I'll be like, <laughs> "Well, you know, I did I did a lot actually, but." someone just decided to turn it off one day um, and they're going to go, oh, okay, that, that sounds a bit weird. I'm like, yeah, it is. I guess it is. So that, it's sad from that perspective, but from a business perspective, I were actually joking around in the car expert office the other day that we were going to send a hamper package to Channel 9 as a thank you for, for giving us the biggest leg up business-wise by turning off what is probably the best content site currently in Australia so that we could rebuild a new one. Um, so yeah, I am, I'm thrilled to be honest from a business perspective. I'm thrilled, but personally it, it does sadden me quite a lot. It's been great talking to you. Have you got, uh, one more big idea left in your life? You think? This is it, man. I think with car expert, um, it's, it's a huge idea. We're going to go into retail. Um, you know, it, it's a, it, it's so much more than a website this time around. And, um, I'm hoping that this one's going to get listed. So I've learned so much from car advice and everybody that's come on board has learned so much from that experience of basically putting together more than 150 years of experience collectively to do this business again. And so far the first six months have been absolutely amazing. So we're absolutely killing it at the moment. So yeah, it's good, man. It's good. And I think if anyone's listening out there and um, you know, you're, you're in a situation where you have been working with somebody else all your life or you're, you know, you've had bigger ambitions, but never really followed your dreams. Let me tell you, you're going to fail a lot along the way but fuck, it's worth it. Just do it. Like, 
Otherwise, you'll be, you know, you'll be 70 and you would have all this regret about not doing this and not doing that. But just go and do it. You know, it, it, just go and do it. That's all I can say. It's, it's worth doing because you, you just need one success to make all those failures seem worth it. So, and if you keep persisting, you'll eventually get there. Uh, it's a great message to finish on. Our boss, thank you very much for joining us uh, with this episode of On The Record. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. What a migrant success story and what an honest account of a remarkable entrepreneurial life that you suspect still has a few chapters to go.